Sunday, which would have been fall of 2014. Uh, I can remember walking into the Burlingame Rec Center and counting the people that I saw there. I counted exactly 30. So I increased the size of the church by about 3%. So that was an honor to do. But I loved those years. Uh, Sometimes it amazes me when I think back that I was only at that church for two years. In fact, a little less than two years. And it amazes me because of the outsized influence that this church had on my life and that Roger had on me. Uh, It was a privilege and an honor. I got to serve as his intern back in those days for about a year. And an intern at a church of 30 uh, meant that most of what I did was meet Roger for lunch. And we would hang out once a week. We'd grab coffee. We'd talk about ministry. We'd talk about the church. I would uh, clean up his kids' toys before small group to give Roger some extra time to study and different things like that. Uh, But it was a joy. So this church has been a huge part of my life. It's been a huge part of Melissa's life. And Roger, in particular, has been a huge part of our lives, just a steady presence. And uh, as Roger mentioned, he officiated our wedding two years ago. And there's a picture from that wedding that I think illustrates the place that Roger has in our lives. And I want to show it to you guys. I'm going to step aside so you can all see it. And I want you to look to the right hand of the screen and notice Roger... And that pretty much sums up Roger's presence in the life of Melissa and I. And if you can skip to the next picture. (laughs) Your pastor, everyone, Roger Chen. It was very windy. (laughs) It wasn't that windy. No, it was very windy. Uh, Roger did not know I was going to show those pictures, so pray for me after uh, this time. Again, I was his intern, so uh, I think that relationship never really changes. Uh, With that said, I invite you to open up your Bibles to Daniel chapter 3. And uh, we are going to shift gears pretty substantially. This is a weighty text, and uh, I think before we dig into the text, I want to pray for this time and pray that the Lord would speak through this convicting text about following him when it's costly. Uh, Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this morning, we thank you for this church, and we thank you for the privilege of being able to open up your word and be challenged and be convicted and be encouraged. Uh, Father, we have been given a tall task to remain faithful in a world of unfaithfulness. I pray that you would help us to do that well, and I pray that your word would equip us for the very task that you have called us to. So may you speak clearly to us through your word, and we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. How much does your Christianity cost you? How much does your Christianity cost you? Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a man who knew about costly Christianity. Uh, And I'll say up front, I can't get behind all of his theology, uh, but I feel that he was one of the most interesting figures in church history. Uh, He was born in 1906 in Germany. And he came from an interesting home, a very high-achieving home. Uh, His father was a renowned psychiatrist and psychologist. He was actually famous for writing a critique of Sigmund Freud, who was obviously a huge deal in those days. Uh, His mother was a music teacher and just a really high-achieving home. He had seven siblings, and all of them went on to uh, achieve great success in various academic disciplines And Bonhoeffer knew that that was going to be his path, and the field of study that he chose was theology. 
So when he entered university, he began to study theology, and he grew up in Germany, and really the heart and soul of the movement of liberal theology, which would be theology that basically denies the deity of Christ, denies the validity of miracles, the resurrection, the inspiration and authority of scripture. So he was in those circles. He was brought up in that world. He was trained by the very best theologians in that world of liberal theology. Uh, This eventually brought him to the United States. Uh, He excelled in Germany. He was sent to the United States to study and eventually to teach at Union Theological Seminary, which is really kind of the the hub of the wheel of liberal theology in the United States. It is to this day, when I say liberal, I mean that. It is far from a gospel preaching context. Uh, But he went to this school, and he uh, got plugged in to a church of all places in Harlem, And he got involved at a black church in the heart of Harlem. And it was there that he actually encountered the gospel. And he wrote a lot about this because there was very much a kind of genesis in his thinking. In fact, some would say that this was actually where he got converted. Uh, And he would, would come to write later on that something happened in that church. And he came to believe that for many years he had studied theology, but he may not have actually even been a Christian. And he believes that it was perhaps in that context that he actually encountered the God of the Bible and he actually became a Christian. So he spent a year or so there and eventually he went back to Germany. He famously wrote in his diary as he was leaving Union Theological Seminary, he said, there is no theology here. And he went back to Germany. Uh, This is Germany in the 1930s. And he knew exactly what he was getting into. The Third Reich was rising. Hitler was in power. Churches all over the landscape were compromising. And he was amazed by this compromise. And yet he went back to Germany. He believed was that at that hour, at that dark hour in Germany, what the church needed and what the world needed more than anything else was not fewer Christians, but more Christians. And he believed in this landscape of compromise That was exactly where Christians needed to be. So he went back to Germany, and it was in those years when he started to write, he started to teach. He actually uh, was the president of an underground seminary, and he started to write about two different kinds of grace that he saw at play in Germany. He wrote this in a famous book called The Cost of Discipleship, and the first kind of grace that he wrote about was what he called cheap grace. Uh, Cheap grace is the kind of grace that doesn't really make demands on your life. It doesn't cost you much. It doesn't challenge you. It doesn't call you to repentance. It doesn't really change you, and ultimately it doesn't save you. Uh, That's cheap grace. But the second kind of grace that he wrote about was what he called costly grace. And costly grace does make demands on your life. It does change you. It calls you to repentance, it convicts you, it challenges you, and it does save you. That's costly grace. And he said that this was the kind of grace that Jesus called the world to and that Jesus offered the world when he said, whoever would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Uh, In fact, the most famous phrase he ever uttered was a paraphrase of that verse from the Gospel of John in which he says, when Jesus calls a man, he bids him come and die costly grace. The irony 
is that when he penned those words in the late 1930s, he did not fully understand uh, just how true those words would prove to be in his own life. As the years progressed, he became more and more convicted that his Christianity would be very, very costly. Uh, He got involved in different activities like harboring Jews. He was involved in an organization that actually plotted to assassinate Hitler. And on April 5th of 1943, the day that he had long dreaded came, a black car came to his house. He was taken away. He was arrested. He was imprisoned for two years where he wrote some of his most incredible works in letters. And on April 9th, in the year 1945, a 39-year-old Dietrich Bonhoeffer hanged. How much does your Christianity cost you? And I tell you the story of Bonhoeffer, uh, not to make you feel bad about our relatively comfortable Christianity compared to that, Uh, but I tell you that story because your faith and your allegiance to Christ will cost you something. And it might not be your life, but it's going to cost you something. In fact, there will be times in your life when your allegiance to Christ might cost you a job. It might cost you a promotion. It might cost you a relationship. And for many of us, what that cost looks like is awkward conversations with coworkers, right? Awkward conversations with non-believers. For many of you, the cost of Christianity is faithful parenting, training up your children in the way that they should go so that when they are old, they will not depart from it. Christianity is costly. And that's not to mention the daily cost of fighting sin, the daily cost of denying yourself to be faithful to what the scripture has called you to. How much does your Christianity cost you? And in those times, in those moments when your faith becomes costly, how will you respond? Uh, That's what we're going to look at from the book of Daniel. And as I mentioned yesterday, this is a famous story. In fact, I think this is the most famous story from the book of Daniel, but it's often misunderstood for the reasons that I discussed yesterday, because this text is actually more about God than it is about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And it's actually more about faith than it is about courage. And those are some of the themes that we're going to draw from this text. So, We're going to examine this text in three parts, three scenes, if you will. Scene number one, we'll call the crisis. Uh, Read with me from verses one to seven of Daniel chapter three. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits and its breadth six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. The herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. 
And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as the peoples heard the sound of the hornpipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Have you noticed in your Christian walk that very often your allegiance to Christ is tested in a few crisis moments? There are crisis moments associated with following Jesus. For these three men, this was one of those moments, the crisis. Uh, Before we get into chapter 3, I want to give you a very, very brief recap from chapter 2. We covered chapter 1 yesterday. We skipped chapter 2. We will continue to skip chapters because we only have four sermons. But in chapter 2, we encounter Nebuchadnezzar. We kind of heard a little bit about him in chapter 1. He was the king. He was a great king. And he had this vision. He had this dream. And none of his guys could interpret it for him, but Daniel could. And the dream was basically this. He sees a statue. And there are layers to the statue. There are different materials. The head of this great statue is gold. But then a huge stone comes and it crushes the statue. It literally pounds it into dust. The dust blows off into the wind. And Daniel interprets that dream and he says, the statue, the statue represents four kingdoms. You, your kingdom is the head of that statue. And the, the kingdom of the Lord is going to obliterate your kingdom. We come to Daniel chapter 3 and what do we read? Nebuchadnezzar has the idea to set up a golden image, a golden statue. So it would seem that either he did not believe that Daniel's interpretation of this dream was actually going to come to pass, or he's decided that if he is going to go down, he's going to go down in a big way. In this glittering blaze of glory, Nebuchadnezzar does not quite get it. And this statue would have been stunning. So it's going to be about 90 feet high, 9 feet wide. You can just imagine how this golden statue would glisten in the sunlight And these men are called to bow to the statue. I want you to put yourself in their shoes. I want you to imagine the pressure that these three men were facing. Imagine, first of all, the political pressure that these guys would have had. Did you catch that long list of political leaders, the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, on and on and on? There would have been tremendous political pressure for these men to bow to this statue. Uh, And not to mention that these guys were the little guys, right? These are the ones who have been invaded by Babylon. These are the people who are speaking a language that wasn't their own. These are the small guys, which means there is tremendous pressure for them politically to bow to this statue. Uh, There would have been social pressure to bow to this statue. At the end of that passage, it says, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worship, which means, again, this is a very, very, very tiny minority. So imagine their friends. Imagine their families. Why can't you just bow to this statue? It's not a big deal. Just drop your knee to the dust. You can cross your fingers behind your back or whatever, but it's not that big of a deal. There would have been tremendous social pressure. And I think probably hardest of all for these men would have been that internal pressure, that internal dialogue playing out in their minds. God put us here. 
In chapter 1 and chapter 2, you see that these men had been promoted into these positions of influence, these positions of prominence, uh, prominence like Daniel. In fact, Daniel, after interpreting the dream, gets promoted, and he calls these guys up. So they had just been placed in this position of power. So you can imagine the dialogue in their head. Why would God put us here if he wanted us to take this stand and have our lives ended shortly after? And maybe some of you can relate to that kind of internal dialogue. God put me in this position. God placed me here. Why would God call me to take a stand at this time? The internal pressure uh, would have been huge. So what do these men do? Verse 8. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship the golden image shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. One of the great challenges in life is choosing the right hills to die on. And if you're a parent, you know that struggle well, don't you? Choosing the right hills to die on. Uh, And one of the great challenges in the Christian life is choosing the right hills to die on. To die on. We all know that struggle well. When is it time to take a stand? So, for these three men, what was it that determined for them that this was the time? That this was the hill quite literally to die on? What was it? Uh, The text gives us some clues. As I've been reading this text, you might have noticed something that stands out pretty clearly, which is just how clunky this text is. Did you notice how clunky it sounds to your ear, how repetitive it is? The satraps, the prefects, the governors, on and on and on. Then you get to the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, on and on and on. Uh, What's happening here is not that the author, Daniel, is forgetful, but he is sarcastic. And he writes this narrative in such a way as to kind of make light of the grandiosity of this whole event. He's a little bit sarcastic because this event is a little bit ridiculous. That's one clue. And secondly, I want you to listen to the way this statue is described. Uh, Verse 2, the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Verse 3, the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. The golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Verse 7, verse 12, verse 14, on and on and on, set up, set up, set up. Nine times in this text, this statue is described as the image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And you start to realize pretty quickly what it was that determined that this was the hill to die on, which is that for these guys, this was not a political issue. Uh, This was not a social issue. Rather, this was a worship issue. This was a worship issue. In fact, more specifically, this was Ten Commandments issue. 
Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. And there's your first hint that the main character in this story is actually God and not these three men, because this is a worship issue. These men knew exactly what they were being asked to do for their friends, for their, their professional co-workers. This wasn't a big deal, but they understood that this was a, a call to idolatry. What they were being asked to do was worship a false God. This is about the true God versus the false God. This is about an eternal and infinite and glorious God versus a God that some human authority has set up, a God who's made out of stuff. So they take their stand because there is no decision here. And like the apostles in Acts chapter 5, they say, we will obey God rather than men. Verse 13, then Nebuchadnezzar in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? I said a second ago that there was no decision here. But there was, wasn't there? These men had an opportunity to turn back. I think that teaches us something about their character. The fact that Nebuchadnezzar gave them a second chance probably speaks volumes about the respect that he had for these men. But they did have a chance. They chose not to take it. And it's here in verse 15 that we find the defining question of the chapter. Who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? And in many ways, that's the defining question of the book of Daniel. Who is the God? who will deliver his people in Babylon. And it's yet another reminder that this story is a story about God. So I ask you again, how can you be faithful in an unfaithful world? And how can you be faithful in these crisis moments when your Christianity becomes costly? If you can take that question and you can turn that around a little bit, and instead you can ask the question, who is the God who will deliver me from this? You're on a good track. That's part one, the crisis. Scene two, we'll call this the stand. How does Nebuchadnezzar respond? Verse 16, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. He will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. The boldness of these men is staggering. And their boldness is impressive, but even more than that, what's really on display here is their faith. And there is a subtle difference between boldness and faith. And I want you to notice a few characteristics of their faith that stands out. 
Uh, first of all, and very importantly, note that their faith is in God's ability rather than his purposes. What does that mean? They understand that God can do whatever God wants to do. They understand that God, in that sense, is free. And yet they have no doubt that God has all power and God very much has the ability to deliver them from this uh, crazy crisis. And that's important because there is a kind of Christianity that doesn't really recognize this. Uh, For example, it's one thing to say that God can heal me of a, a disease or an illness, but it's another thing to say that God will heal me. You see, both of those postures recognize the power of God, but one of them presumes to know the purposes of God. And these men are very hopeful, no doubt. They are hopeful that God will heal them. They understand that God has all power to to deliver them, and yet they have not presumed to know the purposes of God, and they are willing to be faithful regardless of what God will do. Their faith was in God's ability rather than his purposes. A second thing to note about their faith was that it was informed. I have to believe that these men knew their Bibles. Uh, What makes me say that? What kind of men would take a bold stand like this and make those statements that their God will deliver them? I can tell you what kind of people take a stand like that. These are the kind of people who know about the Exodus. These are the kind of people who have read and have believed in the 10 plagues when God delivered his people out of Egypt. These are the people who have read and who have believed about the walls of Jericho tumbling down. These men knew their God. They knew their history. They knew what this God was capable of. So their faith was informed. And because of that, they take a stand. And a third thing to note about their faith was that it was submissive to God's will. The three most shocking words in this chapter are not burning fiery furnace, which are repeated over and over again, but the three most shocking words in this chapter are the words, but if not. In fact, it's those three words that actually prove to us that what we have here is true and genuine faith. And what it is, is faith in God. If you miss those three words, you have missed the chapter. These men had faith, and their faith was placed not in circumstances, but in God. And that's another very subtle difference that's really important for us to understand. Let me give you a scenario. Uh, Let's say that your boss asks you to fudge some numbers, or it could really be any situation, any situation in this world in which you are called to compromise your testimony. So let's say your boss asks you to fudge some numbers and you say no. And you're having faith, but just because you have faith in that situation doesn't actually mean that you're trusting God because your faith might be in your circumstances. So you could have faith that your boss's boss will see the problem there, he'll correct the situation, and you'll be just fine. And that's good, But if that's what you were trusting in, were you really trusting in God or were you just trusting in your circumstances? You see, it is possible to have faith and that faith might not actually correlate to faith in God. And what we have here with these men is a faith that is actually trusting God. And we understand that that's the case because these men are willing to pay the consequences 
if God does not do what they are hoping God will do. They place their faith in God because real faith trusts God. It submits to God regardless of the circumstances and regardless of the consequences. Again, verse 18, but if not, be it known to you, O king, that, you, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. These guys did not have a pragmatic bone in their body. They understood consequences. They understood the stakes, faithfulness at all costs. How can you remain faithful when your Christianity is costly? I have one word for you, and that word is faith. Courage is great. Courage is great, but it's no substitute for faith. And there are a lot of bold people out there. Even as I say that, you might be thinking of one or two. And I can think of a lot of people, Christians and non-Christians, who are very bold. They are these courageous figures. And we love to celebrate these people in our culture. We love to make movies about them. We celebrate these people. They're usually men. They're bold. They're courageous. They're, they're confident. And we love those kinds of stories. But that's not really the courage that impresses me that much. And I'll tell you why. Because there are lots of different factors that can create that kind of courage in someone. So, for example, it could just be that person's temperament. Uh, It might just be their DNA, right? It might just be the genes that they inherited from their parents, and they produced this kind of boldness. And that's great, but there's nothing inherently holy about that. Uh, It could also be life circumstances. This person has, has grown up in a neighborhood or in some kind of context that just demanded boldness and it, it created this kind of courage in them. And that's what produced this person who will boldly take a stand. And again, that's good, but that's not inherently holy. Uh, and honestly, it could just be that person's pride, right? It could just be pride. It could just be that it really puffs them up to take a bold stand. And none of those inherently honor the Lord, But the kind of courage that the Bible commends, the kind of courage that is fueled by faith. And that's what these men put on display for us. That kind of courage is not glamorous. It doesn't have the same swagger as the Clint Eastwood type figures in the movies. It might speak with a stutter It might get sweaty and nervous, but that is the kind of courage that says, my God is faithful, my God is powerful, my God can protect me, and I will take a stand regardless. That is the kind of faith, that is the kind of courage that the Bible has called us to. And I hope that encourages you, because a lot of us are not that Clint Eastwood type figure. And as you think about the future, and as you think about what God has called you to, and as you think about the unfaithful world that we live in, I know that many of us can kind of run through these scenarios in our mind, and you think, if I find myself in one of those crisis moments, what am I going to do? Do I have what it takes to boldly take a stand like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did? And I want to encourage you 
That what you lack in faith, you can make up for. What you lack in courage, you can make up for with faith. Faith. Faith in the one true God. Part three. The deliverer. Uh, Let's read from verse 19 to the end of the chapter. Then Nebuchadnezzar, furious rage, excuse me, then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it usually was heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their outer garments. They were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound in the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. And he answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods." Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed. Their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Happy endings do exist. And this is actually a really difficult text to preach. And the reason it's such a difficult text to preach is because it's such a great story. Right? Isn't this a great story? It has drama. It has suspense. It has uh, all kinds of different plot twists. It's exciting. And best of all, the good guys win. Those are the best stories, right? When the good guys win. Here's the challenge with that. Sometimes we can read a great story like this in the scripture and we can decide that this story should be our story. Is this our story? Because I don't actually think that that's the function of this narrative. And I don't think that we're meant to read this text and come away from it thinking this, if you obey God, things will work out for you in the end. Because... A little bit of of realism would temper that sentiment. And sometimes you do get fired. 
when you take a stand. Sometimes that relationship does become broken beyond repair. Sometimes the Bonhoeffers of the world are killed. In fact, the Bible would have more of those stories than these stories. We could introduce you to a guy named John the Baptist from the New Testament. He took a bold stand for Christ and he was rewarded by having his head chopped off. And those stories exist. So if that's not the lesson of Daniel chapter 3, what is the lesson? Let me give you three. Lesson number one, God will not abandon his people. God will not abandon his people. Again, this is a dramatic text, and the deliverance comes very late in the game, doesn't it? Uh, I'm sure these men were praying as soon as they heard this edict from the king, God, may you change his mind. That didn't happen. They got all the way, not up to the burning fiery furnace. They were in the fiery furnace when the Lord delivered them, but they learned a valuable lesson, which is that God will not abandon his people. And in the fiery furnace, we encounter this mysterious fourth man. Much has been written about this. Was it a pre-incarnate Christ? Uh, That's very possible. You could ask God about that when you get to heaven. But the point is this, God will not abandon his people. And the text doesn't spell out what that might look like in your life. But we can promise you this from the scripture God doesn't abandon his people. In Babylon, God is there. In the burning, fiery furnace, God is there. In Silicon Valley, God is there. This is really just a vivid illustration of the message of the whole book. No matter where you are, no matter what your context, no matter how unfaithful your world is, God is there. God is there. And we need that reminder, don't we? Because the world in which we live is much closer to Babylon than it is to heaven. And than it is to the promised land. The world of California, the world of Texas, doesn't matter where you go in the world, the world that you will live in is closer to Babylon than it is to the new heavens and the new earth. And we need to be reminded often that God is there and God will not abandon his people. And I can't guarantee that you will experience the kind of miraculous deliverance that these men experience, but I can guarantee that God will be there even in the darkest hour. Second lesson from this text, God is worthy of your faith. God is worthy of your faith. Uh, We've seen a lot of drama in the banking industry It's close to home for my wife and for some here. Silicon Valley Bank, Signature Bank, First Republic Bank, dropping like bowling pins. And what this reminds us is that human institutions fail, people fail, organizations fail, governments fail, God does not fail. God is a worthy object of your faith. Your faith can be no stronger than the object in which it is placed. God is worthy of your faith. These men had faith. They placed their faith, again, not in their circumstances, but in their God, and they found that their God was worthy. He was strong enough to hold that faith. God is worthy of your faith. Resolve to trust God, no matter the consequences. 
because he's worthy of your faith. And a third and final lesson here, God will receive the glory. When you take a stand for the Lord, he will receive the glory. And this is where I remind you yet again, this is not ultimately a story about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The book of Daniel is not ultimately a story about Daniel. This is a story about God. Uh, Look again at verse 28. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any God except their own God. And then verse 29, there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Did you notice that Nebuchadnezzar answered his question from verse 15? Who is the God who can deliver you from this? That God has been identified. This is a God. This is a God who is big enough to command the allegiance of his people, even in their darkest hour, even in the face of death. By the Lord's grace, Nebuchadnezzar gets that message. It will take him a while, but he will come around. He will understand the message. And in the end, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were not the heroes of the story. They were heroes, no question, but the hero was not. So, when your Christianity becomes costly, when your allegiance to Christ is tested, how will you respond? And I will tell you that sheer courage, sheer resolve, is probably not going to be enough. Because quite honestly, I don't think that you are as brave as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Sheer courage will not be enough. But if you are that kind of person, if you are that kind of person who, who struggles, if you're that kind of person who, who can waver and who can, can falter, then again, I remind you that what you lack in courage, you can make up for with faith. And if you look to yourself, you won't have what it takes. In fact, if you look to yourself, you'll find that one of the main differences between courage and faith is that courage tends to look inward, whereas faith tends to look Godward. And maybe you will take a stand. Maybe you are that courageous person and you'll look within yourself and you're psych- you'll, you'll psych yourself up and you'll say, I'm going to take a stand. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to give in. I'm not going to compromise. And you might make it, but what will probably happen is you'll become more prideful than you ever were. But faith, if you entrust your life to the God who delivers, you will make it through. You will endure. You will remain faithful in an unfaithful world, not because you are a hero, but because you have entrusted yourself to a hero named Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the bold example of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Thank you, Father, that these men, while they seem so different from us, were not that different. Because every single person in this room who is a Christian, every single person in this room who has trusted in Christ is capable of exercising faith. And faith ultimately has much less to do with the person who is exercising faith and much more to do with the object of that faith. And you are that object and you are worthy of faith. So Father, I pray for Grace Church of the Bay Area that it would be an uncompromising church, 
that it would be a church of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And Lord, I know that the only way that will happen is if this is a church that's filled with faith, a church that trusts in the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Lord, give us greater faith. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.